Thank you, choir. So uh, this morning we're going to continue in the series we started a few weeks ago uh, called Jesus Come and See. And what we've been doing is just putting together somewhat of a biography. And uh, not to say we don't have one already because the Bible in many ways is a biography of Jesus, including the Old Testament, certainly the New Testament, and definitely the Gospels. But what we're doing is just trying to kind of pull these together uh, and, and to, to make them piece together in a way that's a little bit easier for us to fit into the big picture. So this series, uh, we've called called Jesus, come and see, and we started about uh, three Sundays or so ago. This is the fourth message in the series, and uh, looking to put together this biography. So hopefully it's been beneficial for you. Today is definitely a little bit of a different type of message. We're going to get to that here in just a second. But let me give you a little bit of a recap. So a few weeks ago when we first started, uh, we began with an introduction, and what we established there was just the reminder that the Bible is our source material, that anytime we put together a biography of Jesus, there are a lot of movies that have been made, there are a lot of books that have been written, but the Bible is the only one that's trustworthy. And so this is what our source material is. We're pulling out of the pages of Scripture. This is where we're building this biography of who Jesus is. Now, for some of you, a lot of you, you've studied the Bible for a long time. You've been a follower of Christ for a long time. Others of you, this journey is pretty fresh, right? It's fairly new. Some of you are still even deciding, perhaps, what to do with the person of Jesus, whether you're going to follow him, whether you're not, you're just kind of checking things out. Regardless of where we are on the spectrum, right? Uh, we we uh, we turn to Scripture, and everything we read there, we know we can trust in. It, it, it is uh, we we can take it to the bank. We already established that at the very beginning of this particular uh, series, so I won't rehash all that again. But that that's the that's the beginning point is the Bible. So then, a couple of weeks ago, we started with this quality of Jesus uh, regarding his eternal quality that he is eternal. He 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 is not. Uh, ever had any beginning. He'll never have an end. Uh, he is God as a result of that. I put together a really catchy uh, sermon title for that Sunday. It was called Eternal God, right? And, and uh, super creative, I know. But that's what we focused on, the fact that Jesus is eternal, no beginning, no end. There was never a time when Jesus was not, and the reason for that is because he is God. Colossians 1, John chapter 1, they talk about how he has existed for all of eternity. Uh, he made the claims to be God. He was crucified by the Jews and, uh, and by the Romans, and when they crucified him, the Jews, one of the reasons was because... They considered his claims to be God as blasphemy. Of course, he proved to be God three days later when he rose again from the dead. So we, we kind of established that whenever we look at Jesus' life, it's not his beginning. It's his life kind of in, in interjected into uh, this world as we know it. And so last Sunday, we looked at his birth and the old Christmas story. We celebrated Christmas a few months early, and uh, we looked at the incarnation that this is God who had come. His name, Emmanuel, even reflected that, uh, that first Christmas, Emmanuel, God with us. And so we unpacked what that looked like, that, that when he walked this earth, he walked it in sinless perfection, that he was as much God uh, in the cradle as he was whenever he died on the cross and rose again from the dead. And so, so we, we looked at all that and, and the different nuances of how he died for us as our sacrifice, he died for us as our substitute. And then today we're going to put another layer on top. So we're just kind of stacking blocks right now. And, and we're going to add another layer on top. And what we're going to look at today is Jesus's childhood, right? We're going to look at Jesus kind of the early years. But again, understanding by childhood, we don't mean his childhood of his beginning and his existence because he is eternal, but his childhood as he walked this earth 
in the way we read of in Scripture. That's what I want us to focus on. So, so um, there are going to be some implications at the end of this. There are going to be some takeaways that are going to be helpful. So I really want you to lock in. Some of this is going to be some new information to you, and I'll go ahead and, and own this up front as well. Um, that there's going to be some assumptions that we're going to make as we move through this, but I believe that they're going to be educated assumptions, and you'll see what I mean as we move through it. So let's just take some time this morning to look at the childhood, specifically the childhood of Jesus. So there's a principle I want us to start with, and there's going to be one and then some implications at the end. And this is the principle to keep in mind, that whenever we look at the childhood of Jesus, there is little record in Scripture of Jesus' upbringing as a child. Completely understood. There's little record. There's not a whole lot in here. And I think there's a reason for that. But even there, we can piece together some of the components, and we can paint this picture of what Jesus' childhood must have looked like. And I think to do that in a way that's pretty accurate. But whenever you look in Scripture, if you go looking through uh, the Bible to try to pull out all these details of Jesus' childhood, you're just not going to be able to find that necessarily, and yet it's an important part of his biography. When you put together a biography for anybody, if somebody did a biography of your life, for example, let's just say that somebody wanted to write a book about you. I remember when I was a kid and my dad and I went to a movie, and um, uh, it was a movie about somebody's life. I remember pulling up in, the, in front of the house and parked the car, and I was probably eight, nine, maybe 10 years old, and I remember saying to my dad, this is not my dad's most shining dad moment, but um, don't hold it against him because everything else was really good. I said, hey, Dad, I was a little kid, you think they'll ever make a movie about about my life, and his response was, nah, son, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think you mean anything by it, but it stuck with me for all these years. I've been so scarred, right? Uh, but it, actually, he was a prophet, I guess, because he was accurate. There's never been a movie. I made that comment in the nine o'clock service, and afterwards, somebody came up and said, actually, there has been. Jeremy, the children's pastor, made a movie about your life about a, about a year ago. It's like, that doesn't count. And uh, <laughs> that, that, was a, that was a comedy, I believe, is what, what that was. So when you look at Jesus, though, I mean, again, this is eternal God who came. He walked this earth, and uh, he, lived, he lived his life in the public. And we have a whole Bible, right, the New Testament, and especially the Gospels that show us what that looks like. And yet when you get to the part about his, his childhood, his upbringing, there's just not a lot that's there. We know from Scripture, I mean, as a fact, we know that he was born in the city of Bethlehem. We know that was his entrance into humanity as we know it. We know that he was circumcised as any Jewish boy would have on the eighth day. We know that roughly 33 de- uh, days later, he was presented in the temple in Jerusalem. Anna and Simeon were there to witness that. We have all that recorded in Scripture. Uh, we know also that the, the wise men, the magi, they brought gifts to him. We have that recorded in the pages of Scripture in those birth narratives as well. They brought gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh. There's very specific mention of those gifts. We don't know exactly how Jesus, how old he was then. Some say he could have been upwards of two years old. Others say younger. The Bible doesn't say. But we know that event happened. And then we know soon after the magi, the wise men brought those gifts that the, an angel came to Joseph uh, in a dream and said, you need to take Mary, you need to take Jesus, and you need to hit the road. You need to flee to Egypt because of the need for his safety, because Herod was wanting to, uh, to ultimately kill him. And so they did that. They took off to Egypt, and they were there for an undisclosed amount of time, probably not super long. But the Bible tells us that when it was safe and when Herod had passed away, then they were led back uh, to, uh, to Nazareth specifically. And it was there in Nazareth that Jesus would have been raised. It was there in Nazareth that it would have been called his hometown specifically. So as I was prepared for this message, I came across a quote uh, in a book written by an author named Leonard Sweet. And we don't have this quote on the screen, but just listen as I read just a little excerpt from this book because I think it's interesting. 
when we think about there not being a lot of biblical uh, um, detail about Jesus' upbringing. Here's what he says. He says, according to Dr. David Instone Brewer of Tyndale Fellowship, ancient biographers rarely wrote about the childhood of the people that they chronicled. Right? They rarely wrote about their childhood. Their custom was to detail their births, their lives, and then their deaths. And unless someone had an unusual upbringing, they wouldn't mention his youth. And that's exactly what we see happen in the gospel accounts. Again, if, if, if you want, we can kind of say Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in a sense, were biographers. They set out. Now, granted, they were writing Scripture, and the Holy Spirit was inspiring them, but they wrote an account. Luke even said, I want to lay out a, a, in consecutive order a clear account of, of Jesus, right? They didn't list everything, but when you put all four of the Gospels together, what you find is, is that you've got a lot of detail up until Jesus uh, uh, came back from Egypt in Nazareth, and then this huge gap, right, from maybe a couple of years old all the way up till he was 12, and then there's this one mention of an event that we'll get to in just a little bit when he was 12 years old that happened in Jerusalem. And then after that, nothing else until he's 30 years old, right? And so what we can assume from that, again, this is kind of that educated assumption. What we can assume is that his childhood was largely like any other Hebrew boy who was born in that region. I mean, it would have been much like all the other Jewish boys who were born in the first century. There's no reason to think that it really would have been a whole lot different. I mean, we again, we know he was circumcised as a Jewish boy. We know that he was presented in the temple. What we can also assume is that he would have been educated in the synagogue in Nazareth. There was a synagogue there in Nazareth, a little small town. And, and based on the custom, the, the Jewish boys, starting from around the age of five, they began their educational pursuits, and, and that happened largely in the synagogue there. But there was also a component where they were educated in the home. Look at what it says here, Deuteronomy chapter 6. And again, there's a lot of information, but it helps to shape a little bit of this, these early, the early life of Jesus on this earth. But again, we're headed somewhere with this. Look at what it says in Deuteronomy 6. If you go down to... Um, to verse 4. This is all the way back in the Old Testament. This was a command to the Jewish families hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was born. It says, Hear, O Israel, Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart Listen, verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your sons, right? There, we can safely assume that Joseph, as a God-fearing man, we already know that from Scripture. It paints a picture of the godliness of Joseph, Jesus' earthly father. We can safely assume Joseph, as a, as a God-fearing, God-honoring Jewish man, father, would have raised Jesus according to Deuteronomy chapter 6, that he would have taught him the customs. He would have taught him the law. He would have taught him the Old Testament scriptures. He would have obeyed, verse 7, you teach them diligently to your sons. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Jesus would have seen this. 
right? As a Jewish boy, now the Bible doesn't say, and Joseph taught him according to Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. It doesn't say that, but we can safely assume this would have been his upbringing. This would have been his experience. Jesus would have learned. He would have been educated in the synagogue, in Nazareth, that he would later go to as an adult. He would have been there in the home. He would have experienced his earthly dad teaching him the Old Testament, teaching him the Old Testament history, telling him the stories of David and of Moses and of Noah and of Ruth and of Esther. He, he would have known all these things because his dad would have taught him these things as an ordinary Hebrew boy. Now granted, remember, still God, without beginning, without end, a lot to comprehend. I understand this, but when he was in, when he walked this earth, he was also 100% man as well as 100% God. We can't take away from his humanity any more than we can take away from his deity, right? So this would have been his experience. He would have had pilgrimages to Jerusalem every single year. In fact, the Bible tells us this. In Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse, um, verse 39, it tells us of what his experience was being raised up under the, um, the leadership of his mother and his father. Luke 2 verse 39, it says, when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, this is after taking him to the temple as, a, as a, virtually a newborn, According to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Look at verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. Every year, it was the family traveling 90 miles from Nazareth north in Galilee south to Jerusalem. Every year, the Bible tells us this. And again, it, there's this picture that's being painted that Jesus's upbringing, even though it's, it's silent from the time he was a, a, a toddler until 12, and then from 12 to 30, even though it's silent, we, we see this picture that worship was a part of the fabric of his upbringing, just like it would have been for every other Jewish boy like him, right? His parents... Um, they, they would have made sure that he knew the scriptures. They would have made sure that he was exposed to Jewish worship. He would have known what it was like to be in the synagogue. He would have known what it was like to go to the temple in Jerusalem. We can also gather that when he was born that his earthly parents, Mary and Joseph, um, were probably on the lower end of the scale uh, financially. The reason we know that, we won't go to exactly to the scripture, but in Luke 2, when you read there of their sacrifice that they made after Jesus' birth when they dedicated him, that it was not the, uh, the lamb which was customary. In fact, Leviticus had made provision in the law that if you could not afford a lamb, there was another sacrifice that you could offer. Two turtle doves, for example, would have been a substitute, and that's what they offered. Was the sub They didn't provide the lamb. And the picture there is that his earthly parents were probably not just filthy rich. I mean, they were probably on the lower end of the scale uh, financially. I mean, Jesus, if you have this picture in your mind that, you know, this is God, this is King of King, Lord of Lords, when he came to earth, he probably lived in, you know, uh, uh, just, just wealth and riches. No, he didn't. I mean, he was buried in a borrowed tomb. He, he, he entered Jerusalem before the crucifixion on a borrowed colt. He made the comment in his ministry, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, right? Foxes have holes, birds have, have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He wasn't raised in wealth. I mean, he, he took on poverty. You know, this was the picture of his upbringing. And yet every year his family would prioritize traveling 90 miles from Nazareth to Jerusalem for the purpose of celebrating 
He probably would have apprenticed under his father Joseph. Joseph, of course, was a carpenter. Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. Jesus' ministry, when people would begin to see him and hear him and witness his works, here's the comment, is not this the carpenter's son? Right? Joseph, his dad, was a carpenter. He probably came alongside of his dad like every other Jewish boy would have. Learned the trade. Ironic, I know, right? That he would be taught the trade from his father as was customary. Working with wood when he would eventually be crucified on a cross of wood from trees that he created <laughs> as eternal God. Right? This would have been the picture of his upbringing just like every other Jewish boy. I mean, Nazareth would have been the town where he was, where he was born. Nazareth was an interesting, an interesting city of itself. But before I tell you a little bit about Nazareth, let's talk about another city, a city called Sephoris. Sephoris is interesting. You can do some research on your own on this. I'll give you just a quick little picture of Sephoris. Sephoris was uh, a city that was um, anywhere from two to four miles from Nazareth. I was talking to Jeff Gibbs, one of our guys here in our church who's lived in Israel for six years with his family working there in the past and uh, has a deep knowledge of the land of Israel and how it overlays into the pages of Scripture. He and I had a fascinating conversation. Basically, I had learned some stuff in my research about the city called Sephoris, and I ran it by him this weekend, and he's like, yeah. The city Sephoris was about anywhere from two miles to four miles from the city of Nazareth. And it's interesting because it was, in a lot of ways, kind of what Nazareth was not. Sephoris was, um, was the city that was laid out like a Roman city, right? Nazareth would have had this Jewish flavor, Sephoris not as much. It was, it was a city laid out as a Jewish, I mean, as a Roman city. Uh, Herod would have had a, a palace there. There was construction that was ongoing in the city of Sephoris, and many tra- uh, uh, tradesmen would travel there to perform their trades, right? Because there was always work. And many scholars believe that very possibly, it's not in the Bible, but very possibly, Joseph would have customarily traveled from Nazareth to to four miles to Sephoris to work his trade, right, as a, as a carpenter. And again, this is an educated assumption, but you can assume that very possibly Jesus would have gone with him. And what he would have seen in Sephoris would have been largely different than what he would have seen in Nazareth because Sephoris, as a Roman city, all of it was under the Roman Empire, but as a distinctly Roman city, would have had this flair. It, it, it was called the Jewel of the Galilee. I mean, there was this, there was this opulence, and, and he would have been exposed basically to the world. Not to Jewish customs, but to the world in Sephoris. Two miles to four miles from his hometown in Nazareth. So that Jesus understood the needs of the world by having seen them himself. And by the way, what about Nazareth? Nazareth, again, is where he raised. He was known as Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Nazarene. Jewish city, small, indiscreet not even mentioned in the Old Testament, 15 miles from the Sea of Galilee. This, this would have been Jesus' home. One writer, C. Welton Gaddy, I read a book by him years ago. He made the comment about Nazareth. He said it was the wrong side of the tracks kind of place. That, that's, where, that's where Jesus was raised. This was his hometown. Jesus didn't choose for, in, in, in his uh, omniscience, right, as eternal God, he didn't choose to come to the big city. 
You know, it's not like if he came to this region today, he, he's not going to come to New York. He's not going to come to L.A., right? He's going to go to some place kind of off the beaten path, and that's going to be his hometown. That, that's what Nazareth was. And when he was in Nazareth there, he was raised up as a Jewish child. He was able to witness not just Jewish life, but life in the world as well. And it's funny because in Nazareth, you may remember in the book of John, chapter 1, I think we have this one on the, on the slide as well, there was, this, <laughs> there was this scene where Jesus was kind of being revealed in his ministry. And uh, Nathaniel uh, said, <laughs> Philip and Nathaniel are having a conversation. Nathaniel said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? You know, Philip's telling him you know, about Jesus, who, who's from Nazareth, and he's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, I don't know what town you were raised in or what city you were raised in, but imagine somebody saying that about your city, right? You know, wherever you were born and raised. Somebody's saying, can anything good come out of that place? That's what they were saying. This, this was what Nazareth was like. And then I love what Philip said. This would be a great sermon series title. He said, come and see. You know, he said, just come and see. Come, come see for yourself for who this Jesus is. But it begins to shape this picture of Jesus, of, of what his upbringing was like. And it was a lot like yours. Fully God, yet fully human, raised in the same world, walking the same roads, figuratively speaking, as what you and I walk. What about his family? Any good biography is going to talk about family. What about Jesus' family? Does the Bible tell us anything about his family? Well, number one, yes, it does in, in pretty good detail. Number two, it's probably not the same as what you've seen in a movie or read in a book, right? Any of these movies or books that talk about Jesus being married or whatever, I mean, it's, it's not, those are not rooted in Scripture. You don't see that anywhere in the Bible. But what we do see is that not only did he have an earthly father, Joseph, and an earthly mother, Mary, but he also had siblings. Matthew chapter 13, look at what it says here. We'll read a little further than what I read just a moment ago. Matthew 13, verse 54, he came to his hometown Nazareth, he began teaching them in their synagogue, probably the same synagogue he was raised in, so that they were astonished. They said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? See, when his earthly ministry began at the age of 30, the people in his own hometown are thinking, we've never seen any of this before. This is, this is Jesus the carpenter's son. And he wasn't like performing miracles, you know, at the age of 13, like, poof, I'm going to do a miracle. At the age of 18, poof, I'm going to do another miracle. It, it was just an ordinary life to the point to where when his earthly ministry began and he was doing miracles and he was teaching, proving himself to be God, everybody was blown away. Verse 55, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, right? There are four brothers that are named there. Four brothers, specifically, James and Joseph, Simon, and Judas, that's interesting, also known as Jude, not the same Judas that would betray him. Two of these brothers would go on ultimately to write two books of the New Testament, James and Jude. But he had four brothers, and then it goes on and says, verse 56, and his sisters, are they not all with us? So sisters, plural, that's at least two. So in Jesus' earthly family, as he was being brought up under Mary and Joseph, he had four brothers, we know their names. We had two sisters. He had two sisters. They were unnamed. This was the family dynamic in which he was raised. Now imagine for just a moment being one of his brothers or one of his sisters, and this is the standard that you get held to by mom and dad, all right? You got a perfect brother. <laughs> Who is God? <laughs> 
who uh, never did anything wrong, never said anything wrong. And this, is, this would have been a part of their family dynamic. The Bible doesn't tell us anything about that, but you can just imagine what it must have been like. And by the way, his brothers did not always embrace him as the Messiah, even when his ministry began. Look at what it says in John chapter 7, beginning in the first verse. We see this interesting commentary that John includes in his gospel that uh, says a lot about Jesus' family. John 7, verse 1. He begins, it says, After these things Jesus was walking in Galilee. This is in his public ministry as an adult. For he was unwilling to walk in Judea, down south, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Therefore his brothers, this is his earthly brothers, said to him, Leave here, you can hear the sarcasm, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works which you're doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Verse 5, for not even his brothers were believing in him. So again, if we have this picture that this is God coming to earth, which it was, and he kind of had the smooth path laid out for him that we can't relate to, that, that was not the case. Raised like every Jewish boy, he would have been exposed to the ways of Judaism as well as the ways of the world. He would have had family dynamics just like you have in your family, right? He would have had difficulties that come, all of it without sin on his part, but he would have walked the difficult road of life to the point to where even his own brothers did not believe his claims to be the Messiah when his earthly ministry began. There's this one snapshot out of Jesus' younger life at the age of 12 that we can read of today in Luke chapter 2. It's an interesting picture of what happens here. Jesus is in the temple. He's 12 years old. And uh, let's take a look at how Luke explains it for us. Luke chapter 2. Let's begin in verse 41. So it says, Now Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents were unaware of it. But they supposed him to be in the caravan. They went a day's journey, and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. Now, let me just say, this makes Mary and, uh, Mary and Joseph look like pretty poor parents. That's not necessarily the case, because in those days, Jewish culture... As you'd make these pilgrimages to Jerusalem, it would have been customary for them to travel. It calls it a caravan, but you would have had an extensive, um, extended family. It would have been kind of like one nice long trip, you know, where kind of everybody would be in charge of the family. So Jesus, ultimately, they're traveling in this caravan, verse 44. They travel a day, and then Mary and Joseph begin looking for him among their relatives, among their acquaintances. Verse 45, when they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us this way? Now remember, Jesus is sinless. Now look at what his response is. She says, behold, your father, meaning Joseph, your father and I, See, there's, there's actual biblical evidence of that statement. You thought you only heard it from your parents when you were a kid, right? Your father and I, 
They say, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. Look at Jesus' response. And he said to them, why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? There's this interesting distinction, and I think this is just a little bit of an assumption, again, on my part. But I think at the age of 12 here, Jesus fully knew who he was, that he was God, and he knew was his purpose for being here. That, that's, my, that's my thought. In fact, we talked about this in our podcast, I think just this past week, and we're kind of kicking around a little bit. So when did Jesus realize, because he's 100% human, it's not like he had all wisdom at the beginning because it says in Luke 2.52 that he grew in wisdom. Right. So when did he finally like, come to the conclusion that I'm the Messiah? When did that happen? And the Bible doesn't tell us, and it's just open for speculation. Personally, I think that as soon as he was old enough to realize that he was human and not a dog or a lamb or a, or a doorway or a tree, right? when he was old enough to realize, hey, I'm distinctly different, I'm a, I'm a human, right? I, I think it was around that time, just my thought, that he also understood that I'm the Messiah because right? he was always God, he was always man. And so we find him here, even at the age of 12, his mom's saying, your father and I have been worried sick. And he's saying, didn't you know I have to be about my father's business? It was an interesting response. You look down in verse 51. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. And he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. No other mention of Jesus' childhood after that event. You've got from being born in Bethlehem up to they moved to Nazareth after their trek to Egypt. Silence till the age of 12. This one event, silence until his ministry begins at the age of 30. Always fully God. Always fully human here during his time on earth. So you say, so Brooks, what's the big deal? What are some implications here? Let me just pull out a few and we're done. I think one implication that comes out of this, Jesus' experience when he came for us and lived life in this world as we know it, I think one implication is that you're a product of your upbringing, right? For all of us, everyone in here, you are a product of your upbringing. Whether your parents were the best parents in the world or were on the other end of the spectrum, whether you were raised in poverty or whether you were raised in wealth. Regardless, you are a product of your upbringing. Jesus, I know this gets dicey, 100% God, eternal, but he was shaped and influenced during his time on this earth by the environment in which he was raised. Again, raised up in the scriptures, raised up by a father who honored God, who honored the Old Testament, raised up in an environment where he knew what worship looked like, raised up very possibly going to this city, Sephoris, where he could see the world on display with all of its rough edges and challenges and heartbreak and hurt. This is, Jesus was shaped by his upbringing in his humanity. You're also shaped by your upbringing. There, there was one snapshot out of Jesus' ministry in John chapter 8 where uh, his upbringing is even held against him. He's going toe-to-toe with the Pharisees, and um, he, he's essentially explaining who he is, that he's eternal. And uh, one of the Pharisees makes the comment, I think we've got this on the screen, out of John chapter 8, you're doing the deeds of your father. And they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God, right? I mean, you can assume by that one statement, you know, Jesus' birth was a little out of the ordinary, right? where Joseph was not necessarily his father, he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. 
born of the Virgin Mary, this story probably followed his family for his whole entire life, thrown in his face, even though it was untrue. He was a product of his upbringing, at least the humanity side of him. You are as well. Principle number two, sometimes your upbringing can be built upon positively. Certainly Jesus' ministry would have, would have taken into consideration and been shaped by, as I said, what was poured into him by his parents who honored the Lord and who loved the Lord. For many of you, your, your uh, upbringing, for those of you who were raised in an environment where it was positive, where it was honoring to the Lord, right? You can build on that. When you raise kids, you build on that. When you raise grandkids, you build on that. When you influence other people, you're influencing them out of how you were raised. But not everybody had such a positive experience during their formative years. For some of you, it was a very difficult experience. Principle number three, some aspects of our upbringing have to be ultimately overcome. Right? For some of you sitting in here, when you look back to the way you were raised, not trying to be junior psychologist here because I'm not, but when you look back to how you were raised, you, you kind of scratch your head and you think, I don't really remember my dad teaching me anything from the Bible. I don't remember my mom really teaching me anything about godliness and about who Jesus is and about God. Maybe that's your experience. In fact, maybe for some of you, you look back and say, you know what, my whole family history was just this broken mess. I mean, it was just no, no teaching about who God is, no teaching about how God loves me, no teaching about how special I am because I'm a creation of God and God, I bear the imprint of, uh, of God's image, right? There, maybe for some of you, there was none of that. And, and when you look back at the examples of your life, it was just a lot of brokenness, a lot of bad examples, and, and you've had to overcome that. Here's the good news. Jesus didn't have that kind of a history. Yes, he had brothers who didn't believe in him. Yes, he had a culture who held his, un, his misunderstood past right against him. They twisted it, took it out of context, right, and tried to use it against him. But though his upbringing was positive and it was, it was beneficial, right, for, for you maybe not so much. And you have to hold to the promise that we find later in the New Testament that says that God is for us, not against us, and that says that he's able to take even the worst of times and to use them for ultimate good in our lives. And the only reason that's even possible is because this Jesus, who walked the same world we walk in the midst of, fully God, fully man, would die to pay the penalty of our sin to rescue us out of that mess. Right? And so when you look back over the way you were raised, and you think, you know what, maybe I, maybe I don't have what it takes as a dad because I didn't really have that example. Maybe I don't have what it takes as a mom because I didn't have that example. You know what, maybe I can't be the Christian that it seems like everybody else is because I wasn't raised that way. Listen, that is not the case. God applies this thing called grace to those who know him through Jesus. And then the final implication, and we're done as we look at the upbringing of Jesus, is that for all of us who have a relationship with God through Christ, we're part of this larger, longer-lasting family, right? We have this opportunity not only to be blessed with an earthly family on this side of heaven, but we're also family too, right? And when you think about your family as a person, you know, the holidays are coming, some of you going to be sitting around with family. All of us have that family member, Right? That when you think about them, you think, yep, that's that one. You know, we got a great family, but, and then you name that name, right? You've already got their image in your head right now. If you don't, well, you might be that. <laughs> you might be that one. <laughs> Regardless of what our family is like on this side of heaven, 
Man, here's the beauty of it, is that we get to be family with the common bond of our shared relationship with Jesus. When we've made the decision to lay down our sin and to embrace and follow him, not just as any other person, but as God and as Savior and as Lord. And when we do that, it puts this amazingly high priority on this thing called church because we're suddenly in this together, right? To follow his lead, to honor his name, and to further his mission together. With all the warts and all the, all the, the rough edges and all the things sometimes we may have to work out, we're in it for the long haul. Following a Lord who also had an earthly family that wasn't perfect and ultimately blesses us with one that's bigger and lasts longer. So for you, you know, again, I said moving in, this is a different message. I don't often preach messages that have so much speculation, right? The Bible doesn't tell us exactly. This is one of them because we're looking at a biography, and it's hard to do a biography without looking at one's childhood and the way they were raised. I think we've taken some educated guesses at what life was like for Jesus, but at the end of the day, what we do see is that we serve a God who's been there and who knows what life is like on this earth and is able to lead us where he wants us to be. The key is not, is he able? The key is, am I willing to surrender to him the way he calls me to? And when we do, even in the midst of difficulty, he says, take heart, for I've overcome the world. Let's pray. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Maybe for you as a Christian, you've had this image of what Jesus must have been like growing up because we don't have so much information. Maybe, maybe your picture of Jesus was this picture of just kind of this, this holy bubble around him, insulating him from the harshness of the world, or insulating him from things that, uh, uh, that you wish you could be insulated from. That, that's not the way it was for Jesus. He walked this, this, in this world, he felt the hard edges, and he paid the ultimate price by people who hated him for who he was, all for the purpose of paying for our sins so that we can make the decision to choose to bow before him as Lord and as Savior and as God and to follow him where he leads. You know, for some of you, you've made that decision. For some of you, you made that decision a long time ago, and I hope for you that that you've not come to a place to where you're tired of learning and you're tired of growing. The picture in Jesus' earthly life growing up as a child was to grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. And that's what God wants us to do is to constantly grow deeper in our maturity as followers of Christ. But for some others of you, you've never placed your faith in Jesus. You've begun thinking about him. That's why you're here. You're wanting to know more about him. That's what we're aiming for in this series. We have a whole book called the Bible that tells us so much about who he is. But at the end of the day, you boil it down into just 10 seconds. And the 10 second uh, uh, boiled down version is that he loves you. He desires relationship with you. He's the only way of salvation. And the one thing in the way, your sin, is what he died to pay for. And he calls you to respond by laying that sin down and by surrendering your life to him. And right where you sit, if you've never done it, you can do that by simply saying something like, Lord Jesus, I believe that you're God. I know that I've sinned. I know you died and rose again. Would you forgive me and take over? And he'll do it. Lord, thank you today for your word. Thank you that your word tells us everything we need to know. And even in those gaps 
Lord, thank you that we're able to kind of formulate this picture of what your life on this earth was like. We don't have to know those details. If we needed to know them to be saved, you would have put them in there. But it, but it is interesting for us to just kind of let our minds go a little bit and realize that you lived in a world just like us. You lived in a fallen world just like us. You felt the blowback and the hard edges of this fallen world just like us. And yet you lived it perfectly. You lived it in a way that honored your family, your mother, your father on this earth. You lived it in a way where you had to deal with opposition. You had to deal with doubt. And yet you always maintained your composure. You always honored others. You always did it in the way that it needed to be done, even to the point to when you died in our place. You did that sufficiently so that all today, 2,000 years later, who call on you to be saved can experience this, that, just that, freedom and salvation that only comes through you. Thank you for what you did. You could have come for a day or two, lived in a palace, and died a different death for us and been done with it, but you chose for whatever reason 33 years in a fallen world so that we can walk with you, our Savior, who knows us. We praise you, Jesus, for all that you are, for all that you've done, and it's in your name we pray.